Good morning, Incarnation. Good to be back with you this morning. You might have heard I spent a couple of days in the hospital this week. Um, everything seems fine, and thanks for your prayers. Um, so today we're going to talk about um, cause and effect and discipline. So um, as parents, Sarah and I have always tried to give our children a home environment that's stable and predictable. We have our morning routines and bedtime routines that are the same day after day. The way we eat our meals together follows predictable patterns. And in particular, we've paid special attention to the way we discipline our children. It's important to us that we agree as parents on what behaviors should be disciplined and how. And also that our discipline never comes as any kind of a surprise to our children. We try to make it really clear exactly what the rules are and exactly what the consequences are going to be for breaking them. Then when discipline is needed, we give them a clear warning and then respond with the consequence that we predicted. In all these ways, we aim to create for our children a world of cause and effect where good behaviors are rewarded and bad behaviors are punished, all in the appropriate measure and all without delay. Proper cause and effect produces a world that's predictable, that feels stable and orderly. And all of us find that if our actions have predictable consequences, then it gives us a sense of control over our lives, and that in turn produces security and peace. So I'm sure that if you are parents, then you try to do a similar sort of thing in your own home with your own children. It's a really good way of loving them. It teaches them that their lives and their choices matter. And it helps them uh, to raise them in a safe and stable world of cause and effect. But there's a problem with this, isn't there? And most of us realize it, and it nags at us. The problem is that this dependable relationship between cause and effect is really not the case in the real world. And so we're not preparing our children much for the way this world actually works. The reality of this world feels much closer to total randomness. It's randomness to the point of madness. And Solomon saw this too. Out in the world, under the sun, he noticed that there are two main types of cause and effect when it comes to dealing with evil, when it comes to discipline and punishment. First, he observed that there's the king and his government. Uh, and the king's pretty good at responding quickly to events, but he offers results that are unpredictable and unreliable at best. Um, and then second, there's God. And God has results that are perfect, but nobody's ever seen them. We're still waiting. So, in, so between those two, there's a lack of reliable cause and effect in this present life. And that lack leads to its own kind of vanity, its own new problem for our lives here under the sun, one that serves to increase the amount of evil on the earth. So let's open this text together and explore it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is on page 557 of the church Bibles. 557, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And this is quite a sobering chapter, but we're still going to find some good news at the end of it. So first, we're going to think about the king's justice, then God's justice, and finally, what this teaches us about New Testament justice. As we launch into chapter 8, it begins by reminding us in verse 1 that we're following a path of wisdom in all these thoughts, and that wisdom is a good and precious thing. Verse 1 says, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. 
So this verse acknowledges, on the one hand, that here we are probing deep mysteries, that these problems are truly difficult and understood by very few people. But on the other hand, they are worth struggling over because a resolution of these mysteries, or at least a piece about them, softens the face and brings joy to the heart. So this road of wisdom is not all gloom and doom. It does not end in despair. It ends in a shining face. Although the road does wind through some truly difficult terrain, it emerges at a satisfying and pleasing destination. And let's hope we can find that same destination this morning. So first, Solomon explores the justice of the king, which happens quickly, but with unpredictable results. Starting in verse 2, Solomon says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So here in these verses, we get a portrait of the king, and the king has a powerful word. His word is supreme, says Solomon, and he uses that word to command people. And Solomon says that the authority of this king to command is legitimate. It's legitimate because of God's oath to him, verse 2. In other words, it's legitimate because the king acts as a regent to channel God's own authority. But that doesn't mean the king is always right. Uh, these verses are written from the perspective of a citizen who's being called to obey his king. Um, but the verses seem to be full of doubt that the king is really doing a good job. Because in verse 3, the citizen is tempted to leave the king's presence hastily, which can only mean he thinks that the king is wrong and he's ang angry or anxious to get away. And then the evil cause later in verse 3 seems to be some kind of riot or rebellion against the king himself. And in verse 4, the citizen is surely being tempted to talk back and ask the king, what are you doing? So the picture here is of a king who is a man of action, is taking authority, but who isn't always in the right. And a wise citizen who's tempted maybe to disagree with his king and might really know better. And Solomon says to that wise citizen, A, keep the king's command because of God's oath and out of fear of God. B, stick with the king because of his power and what he can do to you if you don't obey. But then also C, in verse 5, he says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So verse 5 nuances the picture of obedience a little bit and leaves a little bit of room for some discernment because it suggests here that there, there might be some room for the wise to interpret the king's command and to do it in a proper time and way that's better than the king intended. It also implies that there might be a proper time and a just way to actively disobey the king, to take a stand of civil disobedience. So for the righteous person, the picture given here is a high standard of respect and obedience to the governing authorities, but not blind obedience when they command what is evil. And these verses are also realistic about the failures of human authorities. They do respond to evil, but not always wisely, quickly, or well. And they have serious limitations. Solomon continues in verse 7, For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun 
when man had power over man to his hurt. So here and now, under the sun, man has been given power over man to his hurt, and the king has been put on the throne to stop that happening, but his toolbox for doing so lacks some very significant tools. He cannot tell the future, including his own. He can't stop people from dying, including himself, and he can't cure people of wickedness. Wickedness is like a prison from which no one can escape, and we know that also includes the king himself. Perhaps the king himself is even included as a man who has power over man to his hurt in verse 9. Maybe he can become part of the problem when he ought to be part of the solution. So all in all, we can look to the king for some level of justice on earth, and on the plus side, he will act now, he will do something, but with all these setbacks and disadvantages, the results are spotty at best. We will always find the king unpredictable and unreliable. So then, what about God? Surely God can do a better job at justice, bring about a stable, peaceable cause and effect. Well, yes, he can, but he's not going to do it yet. Because Solomon goes on in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So we see from these verses that Solomon was fully confident about the end result in verse 12. He said, I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. That is a sure and certain confidence that God's justice is perfect and that God sees and judges the heart, not the outward appearance. But all that's true in the end, in the fullness of time. The very key word of this section is that word there in verse 11, the word speedily. It's a real problem that God's sentence against evil does not come speedily. The king was able to act speedily, to do his job here and now in real time, to do whatever he pleases, but the king has unreliable results, even though he stands as God's human proxy. God himself gets the results, the perfect results, when he sits in the seat of judgment, all those who fear him are rewarded, and all those who choose wickedness are punished. But none of that happens speedily. There's a serious time lag to the degree that no one living or dead has ever seen it happen, at least no one since the time of Noah. And because of this time lag, Solomon concludes in verse 11, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. If you cheat and you get away with it, the next thing you do is cheat again and again until all you ever do is cheat. When cause and effect breaks down, then order quickly descends into chaos. Imagine if we as parents all told our children at three years old, I'm going to keep a record of all the times you ever break the rules and then give you all the timeouts you've earned all at once on your 18th birthday. What kind of disciplinary method would that be? And what kind of children would it produce? I hope no one ever puts that method to the test, because I'm fairly confident it would produce nothing but total anarchists. In other words, it would have exactly the same result as not disciplining at all. So we do note that the fear of God in this passage 
causes men to behave uprightly and righteously. Um, I still think in our world today, the fear of God holds back an enormous amount of evil. And Solomon believes, as I believe, and I think many of us believe, that in the end, the Lord will reward those who have feared before him, who have refrained from evil because of their love and fear of God. But nevertheless, we might ask, why does God choose to order the world this way? To appoint a king who is a sinner and is not given all the tools necessary to do the job well? And to back off himself until the very end of the story? It seems to be a setup and a tactic that's obviously set to fail. That will destroy any semblance of cause and effect on the earth and will produce the result of verse 11 that evil deeds are greatly increased. A result that's all too obvious today. And we have certainly arrived at the terrible, madness-inducing situation of verse 14, where Solomon saw there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I, thought, I said that this also is vanity. So here now we not only have uh, the, the situation that causes are not having their proper effects, but we actually see that causes are having the opposite of their proper effects. Good and upright behavior on the earth ought to earn the world's rewards. Wealth, property, security, comfort, long life, friendship, honor, and joy. And wicked behavior ought to earn the world's punishments. Pain, grief, destitution, servitude, shame, loneliness, early death, and despair. And yet, even today, as we gaze around the world as it is, we tend to find the total opposite. The organic farmer who loves the soil, toils, and goes bankrupt, while the chemical farmer pollutes the earth and gets rich. The drug baron lives in well-protected luxury while the FBI agent on his trail dies young with a mortgage and a heart attack. The great tyrants and despots of the world lay down their gray heads in peace, surrounded by loyal friends and counselors, while innocent children are the ones that vicious cancers come to claim. And people doing good are usually poor, and the people doing harm are usually rich. The earth as it is tends to lavish its bounty on the least deserving, returning good with evil and evil with good. It is a complete myth that crime doesn't pay. It often pays very well, very handsomely. A clever criminal can usually avoid getting caught and can usually find a way to get off lightly even if he is caught. So Solomon's analysis holds true today that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. So this uh, chapter in Solomon's analysis here, it comes pretty close to the famous problem of pain in philosophy. It comes close to the idea that in this world, with so much innocent suffering and with the seeming randomness with which suffering is distributed, there must not or could not be any kind of benevolent God in charge of it all. And many atheists lean on this sort of logic to prove their atheism. That's not where Solomon goes here. He goes in a different direction. He never despairs that God exists. He never doubts God's goodness or wisdom. 
but he does despair of ever understanding God's ways for himself. Because as Lee showed us in verse 17, he cries, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So philosophy hits a real dead end on this subject. But actually, that's okay. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. We have to give up control, but we don't have to give up joy. So I said at the beginning that I, as a parent, try to create a setup at home of peaceful cause and effect so that my children will feel a sense of control. I know that the time will come when they leave my home, and a time will come when I die and leave them behind. Either way, I want them to be at the point where they can live without me, where they're fully in control of their own lives. But God does not want that in our relationship with him. It is not God's goal that we outgrow our need for him and learn to live independently. We are not designed for that. We're designed to be his forever, to love him forever. So too much independence, too much sense of control over our lives leads our hearts in the wrong direction. We might turn around and say to God, I no longer need you. And if this world had perfect justice now, and a perfect relationship between cause and effect now, then everyone would keep the rules all the time out of pure self-interest. Then we would produce a world of cold-hearted Pharisees. But there would be little incentive to seek God or know him for his own sake. So maybe God likes the world the way it is. He set it up this way. He made it confusing deliberately to leave you dissatisfied, to keep you hungry for the justice he's planning to bring later on, and to keep you hungry for him. He set us up this way so that we have to give up control, but we don't have to give up joy. Solomon says in verse 15, with most of his toughest questions still unanswered, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Solomon concludes that God does not want to give us all the answers at least not the answers that would make us independent of him. But he does want to give us good gifts, chiefly the gift of himself. And with those gifts, he does want to give us joy. I think it's very easy for us to spurn the real gift of joy that is offered to us while we fruitlessly hunt for the control that we will never find. Do you wait on God to reveal his mysteries to you or to answer your questions before you will turn to him and trust him, he's not going to do it. What you are asking for is independence of him, and that is a gift he's never going to give you. Instead, he calls you to rejoice in the good he has given you. And Solomon would have given his eye teeth to know what we know about New Testament justice now, to learn the lessons that Jesus came to teach us. And I, I love reading this verse 14. I, I really imagine God sitting up there in heaven and chuckling while Solomon wrote verse 14. He wrote, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Solomon was lamenting this as a type of vanity. Little did he know he was writing the gospel because this is the very principle through which God has saved the world. Humanity created an ugly weapon for the world's destruction and its madness. 
But Jesus transformed that into this beautiful tool for the world's salvation. Jesus was born as a human baby and was from his first day on earth utterly righteous. He loved God. He loved his neighbor. He kept the law. He obeyed the king. He gave without demanding payment and received his portion with joy and thanksgiving. He never broke the law of Moses or did any shabby, selfish, or underhanded thing. And so he set himself up to be fully and utterly hated by this wicked and upside-down world and to receive as his reward the worst punishment that wickedness deserves. For his faithfulness, Jesus was rewarded with the betrayal of a close friend. For his honesty, he was given a sham trial built on false witnesses. For his kindness, he was viciously scourged. For his loving leadership, he was mocked with a crown of thorns. And for his many healings, he was crucified. There was not a better man who ever lived and there was not a worse way to treat a man ever invented. So when Solomon wrote, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, I suspect that God chuckled. Yes, and you don't know the half of it. Jesus threw himself into the meat grinder of all that evil machinery, and through it, he has saved the world. Because... Of the second half of verse 14, there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. There's you and me, smiling out of the pages of the Bible. Give yourself a little wave. We are included here in those two words, wicked people. The ones who've run away from God and broken his laws. We've acted out of self-interest. We've taken more than our share. We've ignored the pain that we caused. The, one, the ones who actually deserve to get that treatment Jesus got, what do we get instead? His righteous life credited to our account in heaven. We saw this a couple of years ago when we studied Romans together. Paul explains in that great letter that the death of Jesus not only pays for your sin, pays the legal debt of our sin, it also turns away God's righteous anger by offering him a gift called a propitiation. And it also, in addition to both those things, clothes us with the good and sinless life of Jesus, called imputed righteousness. So the substitution works in both directions. He got treated the way that we deserve, and now we get treated the way that he deserves. So that what began as an ugly weapon for the world's destruction is now transformed into a beautiful tool for the world's salvation. If you're someone who earnestly wrestles with this problem of pain in philosophy, then I don't think by any means that I've solved it for you this morning. Um, I can't fully answer it, and I probably can't satisfy you. Solomon said that even the wisest men cannot find this out. But I hope that I have given you enough to find joy anyway. I do urge you, instead of finding yourself on the righteous side of that equation, who have been treated worse than you deserve, to relocate yourself to the wicked side of the equation who have been treated much, much better than you deserve. It turns out to be a far happier place to live and a more honest one. That's not to say that you have never been wronged or mistreated, but Solomon was right to believe that all that will be judged in the end and perfectly resolved by a God who knows what he's doing. In the meantime, don't drive yourself crazy 
trying to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense. Take Solomon's word for it that God has hidden the answers, even from the wise, in order that we should not think that we're in control, but instead would learn to love and trust God. His gift to you in the here and now is joy. Simple enjoyment in your food and drink and the gifts that he sends, in your work, even though it can be toilsome, in your family and your friends, and most of all in the gifts that come from Jesus himself, a clean conscience, a future hope, the fellowship of his Holy Spirit, and a good standing before the Father. Do not spurn the real joy that is offered to you while you chase after the answers and the control you will never find. Don't spurn the guide while you hunt for a map. Wisdom knows when to surrender, knows when it is beaten, and rejoices to be outmaneuvered by an infinitely wise God. That's why a man's wisdom makes his face shine so that the hardness of his face is changed. Amen.